You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. And Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius, off the Marin-Sonoma coast, and it's an area that is thriving with ocean life both above and below the surface. Today, we are talking water and discussing desalination and the coastal impacts it can have. It seems like it's all over the news these days, and something that's been on my mind is where are we going to get more water? So... Discussions and news reports reports have been focusing on the extended California drought conditions. More and more work is going into figuring out how to get water here in the West. While we can't make it rain or snow, desalination is a technology that can extract fresh water out of the ocean for human consumption or irrigation and is a technology used in California already, but with great expense. Today, we'll explore the potential challenges this brings with California's vibrant coastal ecosystems and the impacts desalination can have on the coast and ocean. Towards the end of today's show, we'll have a short update about the Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons Sanctuary's expansion up to Point Arena. And we'll discuss the oceanographic linkages with John Largier of UC Davis Bodega Marine Lab. So we have a very full show talking a lot about water, salt, and fresh, and how to make that happen. So my guests today are Claire Wagoner, who is the environmental sci- an environmental scientist in the Waste Discharge Unit in the Division of Water Quality with the State Water Resources Control Board, and her work is primarily associated with desalination in California addressing intake and discharge. In addition to me, uh, with me in the studio is Bridget Hoover, who is the Water Quality Program Director at the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and is addressing desalination projects just to the south of us on the coast. Since last week's announcement out of the governor's office order, an order of 25% mandatory cutback in water use um, was stated. And more discussions are coming up about desalination. So perfect timing. And thanks to both Bridget and Claire for joining me in the studio today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jenny. Great. Thanks for having me. Claire, if you don't mind diving right in, let's start. And if you wouldn't mind just giving us a brief overview of what exactly desalination is and how it works. Okay. Well, desalination is really a general term for a process that can be used to separate salt, minerals, and other components from seawater or brackish water. And the goal is to produce fresh water that could be used for human consumption, municipal use, irrigation purposes, um, industrial use, or even groundwater replenishment. And so that can be done by 
taking water from an ocean or a bay to desalinate. But also in some cases it's being used in inland areas to remove salts from water that's too salty to use for irrigation or drinking water purposes. But regardless of, you know, whether you're using ocean water or bay water, the desalination process is generally the same. And what it typically entails is three general steps. And the first step is this pretreatment process. And this is to remove larger particles like suspended solids or organic matter. And this is done before you take the salt out of the water, you separate the salt. And so the second step is getting the salt separated from the fresh water that you want. And in, this can be done you know, a number of different ways. It could be done by evaporation or distillation. But in California, it's being done on a commercial level using reverse osmosis. And so this is where water is being passed through reverse osmosis membranes. And these just have the ability to separate out the water molecules from the salt. And so that's why that first step is important, because you want to get the larger stuff out that could potentially clog the membranes. And so this reverse osmosis process is so effective that you're essentially stripping out almost 99.9% of the salts. So then it, the water requires this post-treatment where you kind of have to add some salts and minerals back in to make the water suitable for drinking or municipal purposes before it goes into the water supply. Excellent. So I imagine that with reverse osmosis, this is a very energy-intensive process, and I know that that's been covered quite a bit in the media. Um, do you have an idea in terms of just to give us a gauge of just how much energy it costs to produce like one gallon of water, or maybe there's another measurement for? Well, so uh, it really depends on what your source water is. So if you have low salinity water, you know, you've got it coming from a bay or an estuary, and the salinity is really low, it's not going to take nearly as much energy as if you have salt water where you need more energy, more pressure to separate out the salt. You essentially need more reverse osmosis uh, membranes because you put them in sequence to really pull out the salt. Um, but then there's also energy recovery devices that a lot of these desalination facilities are using, recognizing the fact that this process is energy intensive and so this is a way of sort of recycling the energy in this energy-intensive process. So I know it's not really a satisfying answer, but it, it is one of those, it depends. Yes, I hear. understand there's a lot of those <laughs> when it comes to technology and the ocean and the coast. Yeah. Um, in terms of history here in California, um, how many desalination plants do we currently have in California, and where are they? So there are 11 coastal desalination facilities. And they're really small facilities, so most of them produce less than a million gallons a day of fresh water, and they really operate intermittently. So there's about three in the Monterey Bay area and probably another five in sort of the central coast area, and then about two one two in the Channel Islands. So one's on San Nicolas Island and the other's on um, Catalina Island. Well, I used to live on Catalina, and I can remember the water tasting really different, <laughs> and that explains it. Um, in terms of the future and currently, uh, are there a lot of projects in the works to increase desalination plants in California? 
Yeah, so what we've seen is, you know, in the past, desalination wasn't really the water supplier's first choice. And I would say it still isn't because it is energy intensive. But, you know, we're entering our fourth year of drought and water's becoming an increasingly limited resource. And so there's several coastal communities that are looking at using desalination as a tool to improve their local water supply reliability. And so what we've seen is there's about 16 project proposals, and these are not so much in the North Coast area because obviously they have a good supply of uh, rainwater, but we see these hot spots in Monterey Bay and Southern California where desalination is being looked at as a tool to help you know, add to the water supply in these areas. Now, I know California is also on track to try to reduce their carbon emissions drastically in the next 10 years. What's the conversation there with uh, energy conservation and reducing carbon emissions, but also potential need for more energy in creating water? It seems like a, a tough trade-off. Yeah, and, you know, it is something that everybody's looking at. One of the things that I know a lot of the people who are proposing desalination facilities, that you know, they're recognizing the fact that the cost of energy could go up in the future. And so it's to their advantage to design the facility to be as energy efficient as possible. And so there are facilities that are proposing to be carbon neutral, but typically by doing things like installing solar panels or the energy recovery devices and then making up the rest with carbon offsets. I'm curious, can can solar panels do, and this is, might be a very technical piece that's tough to answer, but can solar panels produce enough energy for one day of operation of a desal plant? You know, I can't really say for sure whether that's possible. Um, I, it depends on the size of the facility. When you're looking at a really large facility in an area like Southern California where you're space limited, it could be a logistical challenge. But for a smaller facility, you know, in an area where it might have more room for solar panels, it, it could potentially work. What an exciting time for energy and development in California. I mean, I know solar has been on the rise for a long time, but this could be it could be a very neutral um, in terms of carbon emissions, um, production of water. But let's get to some of the impacts. Um, we're talking about desalination, and my guest on the phone is Claire Wagoner with the California, I always get it wrong, the State Water, which is California, Water Resources Control Board. And I also have in the studio here with me Bridget Hoover from the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, who's been working with a lot of desalination projects in the coastal region. But um, we talked about the intake and the water, and what about the discharge? You have, you have to take all this salt out, and where does that go? Well, so for these coastal facilities, you know, a lot of it, most of them choose to discharge it back into the ocean. And, you know, for a lot of people talking to them about putting salt back into the ocean, they think, well, what's the problem, right? We took it out of the ocean. It's going back to the ocean. No big deal, right? Um, but the problem is, you know, along with that, that salt that you're extracting, anything in moderation, you know, or anything in excess can be a potential problem. So there is a point at which salt can be toxic for marine organisms. And so there's better ways to discharge this back into the ocean to minimize the impacts to marine life. So, for example, um, since the salts do have added mass, 
the discharge plume has its dent that's negatively buoyant. So it has a tendency to sink to the seafloor, and it can form this layer where you prevent adequate oxygen mixing. And so you can get hypoxic or anoxic effects in the benthic marine environment. So there are, as I mentioned, better ways to put the brine out. And so one potential method for dealing with brine is by mixing it with wastewater. So a lot of coastal wastewater treatment plants discharge millions of gallons of sort of a freshwater plume. And so this water can be mixed with the brine to dilute the brine and reduce those effects of negative buoyancy and toxicity so that you don't have those issues. And then for areas that may not have wastewater available for dilution, you can install what's called multi-port diffusers. And essentially, it's a system that would go on the end of a discharge pipe. A lot of um, wastewater treatment plants already have these. So the objective is to just rapidly dilute the brine. So you push it out of these diffusers at a high velocity, and it forces turbulent mixing so that salts rapidly disperse and diluted, and so you don't get the dense, negatively buoyant plume, and they are also reducing the area in which you're having toxic salinity effects. Are you aware of any research efforts or studies outside of desalination plant zones to study the the changes in marine life around them? Regarding desalination facilities? Yeah, with the discharge of the brine. You know, we're starting to hear a little bit about it. Um, it's become a hot research topic in a couple of years. So I've heard um, there are some academics who are proposing or uh, requesting grants from places like Sea Grant to study this. But then as these facilities come online, part of their permit requirements will be to look at some of these impacts. And so we'll, we'll get more data the more these facilities go online. Fantastic. Well, this is where I'd love to bring Bridget into the conversation. Um, Bridget is with the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And please stay with us, too, um, right there on the phone, too, Claire. Okay. Um, Bridget's been working in the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary as the water quality director for many years. And um, if folks aren't familiar with Monterey Bay region, it starts actually, the sanctuary starts all the way up here in Marin County and goes all the way down to San Simeon and has a wealth of incredible marine ha- ocean habitats, deep sea canyons, near shore, intertidal, and also is co-located next to an area that doesn't have a lot of water. <laughs> so Bridget, um, you've been so involved and I know that you worked on um, like a framework, sort of a best practices with several agencies in terms of how to best manage this and somewhat ahead of the times, which I was really impressed to see that you kind of got on this before it really became like an urgent issue. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about how the sanctuaries managed learning about desalination and the plants in the area itself? Yeah, it kind of started um, when we went through our management plan review process in the mid 2000s. Um, we developed with NOAA Fisheries, with the Coastal Commission, with the State Board, with other, you know, state and local agencies, guidelines for kind of, as you said, best practices for for project proponents who are thinking about a desalination plant. And so it really kind of just lays the framework of things that they should really be thinking broadly about, um, where best to site a facility, kind of based on what Claire was just talking about, um, you know, potential 
actually having a regional facility so that we don't have a whole bunch of facilities along the coastline, um, considerations for discharge of brine and and um, using existing infrastructure, things like that, getting, getting to your point about um, lowering the carbon footprint and the greenhouse gas emissions. And so it, it just gives a real general... Um, just kind of concepts of things that that the project proponents really need to think about, and then if they if they do move forward and were to apply for a permit, they would need to demonstrate that they have considered all of these different um, actions. Excellent. Now, the plants that are in the Monterey Bay region, the desal plants that are in the Monterey region right now, were those there prior to the sanctuary's establishment, or did they come on after the sanctuary? Oh, um, probably both. And, and like Claire was saying, the ones that are there now are very small. Mm-hmm. What's being proposed are more, th- those are more individual, like to provide, um, water for that particular facility, say the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Um, but what's being proposed now is to provide potable water for the community. So it is a much different scale. Much different scale. Yeah. So I imagine with the scale, um, come increased concerns. And I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, what would I do? But all the habitats that are in this region are so, so precious in terms of migratory birds on the coast and kelp right. forests, habitats. And what are the habitats that the sanctuary is most concerned about? Well, so when it comes to desalination, we have kind of three main concerns. And one is um, the intakes. Where is the water coming from? And if they're open ocean intakes, then there's potential for both entrainment and impingement. So entrainment is when the organisms get sucked into the process with the water. Impingement is if there's, if there's screens involved on the intake, then the organisms kind of get sucked up against the screens and can't escape. So, so entrainment and impingement through the intake of the water. Um, as Claire was mentioning, the discharge of brine is a, a concern. And then also part of the sanctuary authorization, our regulations, um, new infrastructure on the seafloor is prohibited. So if they had to put out new um, pipes for the intake or for discharge, that would require an authorization from the sanctuary. So it's it's the disturbance to the seafloor and the discharge of brine that are prohibited in the Sanctuaries Act. But then, of course, the entrainment impingement is an issue as well. Where are some of the uh, desal plants that are, are larger desal plants being proposed right now in the Monterey Bay region? So we have um, I, three that I would kind of categorize as as large. Uh, one is in the Santa Cruz area, the Santa Cruz Soquel um, proposal. They've kind of put it on the back burner. They had um, gone through, a, they've done years and years of environmental studies looking at the best possible locations for the intakes and the discharge of brine and that sort of thing. Uh, they did all of the CEQA documentation, I think, two years ago. They had an EIR that was out for comment. And um, that was We've always been, as you were saying, we've always been kind of short of water on the Central Coast because we don't import water from the rest of the state. We have to live with the water that falls from the sky. Um, so, so they've been thinking about this for a long time, but they also kind of thought, well, let's let's look at our options. So it's kind of been put on the back burner, and that's about a 2.5 million gallon per day um, project. 
Um, in the Moss Landing area, there's there's another one called the Deepwater Desal Project, and that's they're considering that a regional plant that would potentially provide potable water to the to the north end of Monterey Bay, to the south end of Monterey Bay, and even up into the Salinas Valley. And that's proposed to be 25 million gallons per day potable water. So they basically have to pull 50 million gallons per day out of the ocean to be able to to make that water. It's about a um, 50% effective. So um, that is proposed to be an open ocean intake just at the head of the Monterey Bay Submarine Canyon um, from from deep water granite, but there still is a lot of organisms and diversity there. Um, and then that discharge is not mixed with any kind of a effluent, freshwater effluent, so that would be a straight brine discharge back out into the bay. And then the third one is the Calam project, which is between five and nine million gallons per day proposed. What they're look, trying to do, which um, we they they're trying to um, pull the water through a subsurface intake, what they call a, a, a slant well. So this pipe actually goes under the ocean and pulls from a shallow water aquifer. And so we were the federal lead on it on a test that's actually just been installed, a test well, and um, we're very interested to see if that's viable and if it's going to provide enough water um, to to satisfy the needs of the Monterey Peninsula. I'm imagining this is a hotbed for research. Um, Monterey Bay in general has, you know, you see Santa Cruz, it has the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and Hopkins Marine Station, so many incredible marine science efforts. Um, what do you know in terms of impacts? I mean, we briefly discussed those earlier, but in terms of do we know anything? I mean, I'm just thinking about how much plankton is being sucked up yeah. by the ocean and fish. and like, yeah. it was, It's interesting. The subsurface one is very interesting because it's a little bit less. It's in the ground. But. Exactly, exactly. Um, there, are, there are a lot of studies that have been conducted, both for the Santa Cruz plant and for the deepwater plant. And they, um, there's a model that they use. Uh, Claire might know. It's an ETM model that was designed and approved by the US EPA and they basically can calculate the area of production foregone. So they go out and they do these net toes and they um they basically see, okay, what is the main population that we're seeing in this area? And then they can extrapolate out, you know, where do these organisms come from based on their size and age, how much area of the ocean, you know, is where they, you know, thrive and, and grow. And, um, and then that is, that's kind of the currency that is used in these projects, mostly by the Coastal Commission, but just to determine how significant the impact is. Is the Coastal Commission the primary authorizing agency for development of these plants, or how many different There's agencies many, are involved? Many. I would say probably upwards of 15 to 20 agencies that have to be involved and in, in issue some sort of a permit or approval process. For, I can speak specifically for the sanctuary, and again, for us, um, it's disturbance of the seafloor and it's the discharge of brine where we have to authorize a permit. So it would most likely be the Coastal Commission permit for uh, a coastal development permit, and that would be for laying of the pipe. But then the Regional Water Quality Control Board would issue an NPDES permit for the discharge of brine, and we would 
potentially authorize that? I'm imagining the authorization piece is a really tricky issue to talk about, or even to think about, because basically it makes the sanctuary, it gives the authorization, you have the ability to authorize a permit for another agency. Um, but when it comes to trade-offs, like, I guess there, it depends on how much you would lose for how much is needed. And I think the pressures get higher and higher when it comes to, like, the stakes of water for survival. Mm-hmm. Um, is it likely that the sanctuary would authorize the permit for the water if it came down to these emergency situations? You know, it, it really is. It's so site-specific and size-specific, and we would really have to feel confident that there's no significant impact to the sanctuary and um, that that all of the best possible practices have been put into place. And that's, again, why if Calam can demonstrate that a subsurface intake is viable and, and would produce enough water for the peninsula, I think, you know, that would probably move through potentially quicker than an open ocean intake would. Interesting. Now, Claire, I'm not sure if you would know this. I know that um, Marin County had a desalination plant proposed that went for many years through, I think, Marin Municipal Water District, and I don't know the status of it. Can you talk to that at all? Mm, that one, you know, part of the problem is because these projects sort of change hands. Mm. They're like, who, who is that? What are you calling that project today? Um, and the other thing is it m- might be... No, I think that I think that one is I think that one is going forward, but I I don't really have any details on that facility. Okay, we'll do more research on that. But I believe the intake for that was in San Francisco Bay. Oh, uh, that's why. <laughs> Not necessarily a Pacific Ocean. So we'll have to learn more about that project to uh, talk about it more. I just realized re- learned about that recently. I didn't mm-hmm. know that much about it because I was curious. Now, Claire, the other thing you mentioned is that desal seems to typically be in Southern California areas, low areas where there isn't a lot of natural water. And yet a lot of the North Coast, too, is facing a lot of drought conditions, not having a lot of rain. Um, Is it more about location in terms of where there's more likely to be rain or is it more about the habitat, the terrain that this desal plant would be put on? can you talk a little bit about that? I'm just curious because the North Coast, I know, is having challenging conditions with drought, too. Yeah, so really the the decision to develop a desalination facility comes from the water suppliers, so people who are responsible for supplying reliable, safe water. And this is kind of one of the reasons that in the past desal hasn't really been the first option. You know, it's typically more expensive, it's energy intensive, there's cheaper ways of getting water. And so the decision really is a local decision. You know, somebody who's responsible for providing water looks at their water pie and they say, okay, this much is conservation, this much is coming from here, this much is coming from there. And so the decision really is, all right, we're we're in need of an alternative water supply option. So for example, city of Santa Barbara had been, you know, they had their desalination facility and it was built in the 90s but went offline because it rained. And now we're in our fourth year of drought and so they're looking at this again as, okay, well, we've exhausted all of our other options. You know, we need to make sure that our people have water. And so I would say that's the more uh, common theme as to why you'll see a desalination facility pop up. 
So obviously someplace like Southern California, there's so many people and only so much water. And so that's why I think we're seeing it proposed there uh, in recent years. Mm-hmm. What are, um, are there any other projects that are being proposed north of the Golden Gate Bridge? Let's see. I don't think so. I haven't heard of any. So there's potentially the Bay Area Regional Desalination Project, which that one's either going to be, I mean, it'll be somewhere in the Bay, but we don't know yet whether it would be in Contra Costa, Oakland, or somewhere in San Francisco. And then the other one, um, looks like it would also be in the Bay, but it, they haven't picked a place yet. And that one's the California Water Service Company. But other than that, we aren't seeing anything north of the Bay Area. Okay. You know, one other thing I just realized, I wanted to ask you this earlier, but uh, the desalination process removes the salts and and then it's treated to bring in some of the typical things that are in drinking water. Now, for taking water out of the ocean, there's a lot of pollutants in the ocean, too, that have ended up there from our land practices. And how do those filter through with desalination? I, I know there's been people have been very concerned about radioactivity, and we know that the levels are very low so far in terms of the testing and kelp. But can you talk to that at all about pollutants in the ocean and how those are transferred through desalination? Well, so what would happen is anything that's in the ocean water is going to come into the facility, and through the treatment steps, um, some of the, any of the legacy organic pesticides and compounds, those would probably be filtered out in your pretreatment process. So, you know, the the drinking water portion or the the product water post-desalination is really pretty clean. The treatment processes take most of that stuff out, but then you're looking at this waste Right. So in addition to brine, you have anything else that was in the seawater. It's just been concentrated now. And so, um, as Bridget mentioned, the regional boards issued the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permits or the NPDES permits. So a lot of this is regulated. And even though the brine and all of the other pollutants are going to be discharged back into the ocean, the facility still has to meet certain standards. And so that's involved in their permit. And then if there is a problem where something's high, there's standard procedures for making sure that it doesn't um, impact beneficial uses of ocean waters. Um, Has there ever been thought about uh, discharge on land? Are there ever discharge locations on land that could take this brine? So some, there are things like salt ponds that people have done. Um, there are systems where you put it back into the beach sand and it sort of diffuses back that way. So there, there are options for that as well. Um, however, that's also permitted by the regional board usually. So it's, it's not like you would get out of certain requirements by doing it that way. Okay. Well, um, Claire, are there any other last pieces that you want to make sure we we know about in terms of desalination and what coastal communities should be thinking about? I just think that the take-home message is it's definitely not the solution to California's water problem, but it can be a tool to use if it's done properly. So, you know, as Bridget mentioned, they have a really great document for you know, things to look at, how to do this in the most environmentally 
responsible manner. Um, and I think that that would be the take-home message is for the development of these facilities should be done in a sustainable, um, environmentally um, friendly way, if possible, recognizing that there are always trade-offs when we do things for human needs. Now, actually getting back to that, since the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary put together somewhat of a best practices, a framework for plants in the Monterey Bay Sanctuary area, outside of the sanctuary, we still have incredible coastline. Are some of these other areas kind of held to some of these standards that the the sanctuary kind of took the lead on for within their sanctuary? But Well, so um, the State Water Board is developing a proposed amendment to the Water Quality Control Plan for Ocean Waters kind of known as the ocean plan, and this is a regulatory document of essentially what you can and can't do in ocean waters. And so the amendment addresses desalination facilities, and so it provides guidance and um, sort of a a rule book for if you're going to develop a desalination facility in California, this is how it should be done within the regulatory confines of uh, the water boards. Is that a document people can review online? It is. So we are currently in our second round of public comments on the document. And I knew I should have had the web page ready to go. Well, what would they look up if they were to just type it in? California Ocean Plan Desalination Amendment, perhaps? Yeah, if you go to the State Water Resources Control Board main page, then you would click on Clean Beaches and Ocean Standards. Great. And then from there, there's a desalination page. Excellent. Fantastic. And Bridget, how about for you, um, as things move forward, what's the best case scenario for you and seeing these plants move forward and in and out of the sanctuary, I guess? Um, I think everything that Claire just said, as far as doing it in the most responsible, kind of environmental friendly manner, um, I think... I think one thing that's kind of missing for us is is kind of really understanding that water balance and and how much water is really needed and necessary both to keep water in our streams for the salmonids and for the aquatic organisms you know what what we need as a community you know, right now, you know, what the shortfall is, and then kind of work from there rather than seeing kind of all of these potentially different water districts popping up and thinking of just their community, but really looking at it more holistically and, you know, what does this region need for water and kind of trying to forecast that out. It's the hot topic of the day. It is. (laughs) All the time. I mean, all of us are thinking about it, and I'm sure... A lot more people are thinking about where is their water coming from, from their tap, that never really thought about it before. Mm -hmm. It just came. And it's such a precious, precious resource. And um, it's such a fascinating topic to think about that we live next to the greatest water resource on the planet, yet it's salty. (laughs) So I really appreciate both the perspectives that you bring, Claire, and all the information you shared, and Bridget, as you as well, um, to talk about desalination today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Claire, um, thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. For those folks tuning in, you're listening to KWMR, Point Reyes Station in Bolinas, and this is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and we've just been talking about desalination in California and some of the thoughts behind 
taking water out of the ocean and making drinkable water for us and some of the impacts that could have on ocean habitats. And California has incredible ocean habitats. So there's a lot of things to think about as we move forward in this California drought and thinking about getting the needs of water that uh, met, getting the needs met um, across the state. We're going to take a break and come back in a little bit to talk further about the sanctuary's expansions, both Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Paralons up the coast. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to KWMR. And I wanted to just finish off the show talking a little bit about the uh, expansion of the Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries, which was announced just a few weeks ago, the final rule published. And on the phone with me, we have John Largier, who's a professor of oceanography in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy and Research Director at the Coastal and Marine Sciences Institute at University of California, Davis Bodega Marine Lab. And John is also an Ocean Currents veteran. We've had him on the show before. So, John, welcome, and thank you for calling in. Thanks, Jennifer. Pleasure to be here. So um, just a few weeks ago, the final rule published for this expansion all the way up to Point Arena, or just past Point Arena, and now we wait for 45 continuous days of Congress for official changes and regulations to go into effect. And you've been involved in this effort for several years, even before NOAA took it on as a NOAA action. Um, what is the significance of this expansion to you as a oceanography expert? Well, as you say, Jennifer, it's been, it's a lo- been a long time that we've uh, looked at this part of the ocean. I think the first study that, that I did up here was back in the 1980s. And um, what one comes to recognize is, is that the ocean has a landscape just like the land has. It has valleys and plains and things are connected. And um, the Gulf of Farallons and Cordell Bank has been known for a long time as this bounteous, productive system uh, full of whales and birds and down on Cordell Bank, the rockfish and the deep-sea corals and everything. But as we came to understand the oceanography more, what we understand is are these upwelling cells, that there are their headwaters, their places from which the water comes, just like on the land we would want to include the headwaters in a in a in Yosemite or something like that. That the the waters that come down the mountain you want to make sure they're included in the system. So here the waters that are making Cordell Bank and Gulf of Farland so um productive and so rich are upwelling up at Point Arena. And that's the essence of this expansion is connecting those two so that we're including the headwaters in the system uh, that that we are that we are protecting and trying to be real good stewards for, so the the um, as the water upwells from from the depth full of nutrients into the light of Point Arena and all along the coast, but that's really the the core to call the upwelling center flows south and it develops over the next course of the next week or something into this rich soup of plankton that all those mammals and birds and fish and the, and the salmon out migrating from Central Valley and San Francisco Bay they're all Love it, and that's why it is so bounteous there. So it's been the concept has been, uh, you know, around for a while, and it's wonderful to see 
science and policy coming together to do something really uh, valuable. That's exciting. I'm curious, just I know there's a million factors involved with uh, that. The, what creates this productivity and what is so specific about Point Arena that makes that such a hot spot? I mean, is this, this is the, like the peak upwelling zone for the entire West Coast, as I understand it. But what is it about Point Arena that makes it the zone, the spot? So, so there are two things going on. The one is sort of large scale. You know, the California current upwelling system starts way north in, in actually up to Vancouver Island even in, in summertime. And uh, it shifts with the seasons, and in, and in, <clears throat> in winter time it goes down into mainland Mexico, uh, down you know maybe as far as Oaxaca, but definitely Nayarit and Jalisco and so on. And but this area right in, in north central California, and particularly the you know the data points to Bodega Bay area as being kind of the, the middle of it, the strongest, most persistent winds. It upwells all through the winter time uh, in between the rains upwells most strongly in spring and summer. So there's that story. Um, but, this, you know, so that's a broad region. You can go down to Monterey and up to Arena, Mendocino, um, and it's all a very strong upwelling region. Then within that, are, there are these headlands like Point Arena and Cape Mendocino, and further south you get Año Nuevo, and further south Point Sur. They're all upwelling centers, and that gives you an idea of the of the size of these upwelling cells or these these building blocks of the of, of the landscape. So Point Arena will upwell and flow south and feed the Gulf of Farallones, Point Reyes, Cordell Bank, um, and you know wherever will will flow south and feed Mo, uh, Monterey Bay, Point Sur will flow south and so on. And there, there's several of these. Probably the northernmost. <coughs> that has a structure like this is Cape Blanco, which is just in, in Oregon and feeds the really northernmost part of our state. So that's, that's what makes it um, special. As I say, the upwelling happens almost everywhere along the coast, but these are the, this is where the water comes from the deepest. And even when the winds stop, we find the upwelling continues at these headlands. Just because of the flow of water. Yeah. How does upwelling? How is upwelling affected by El Nino? Can you talk a little bit about that? Since I understand we're in a mild El Nino period right now, just as we're about at the beginning of yeah. upwelling season. You know, maybe I'll, I will just briefly say um, I think a lot of your listeners from your program know about the ocean and about upwelling, but I just want to point out what is um, the, the importance of it is that is that the deep waters in the ocean are like a compost heap, so. As things die in the ocean, they fall down to the deep water, and it's full of nutrients there, but there's no light. So upwelling brings that nutrient-rich water into the light, where you can now have your photosynthesis. And that's the basis of why the West Coast is so productive compared to almost any, well, around the world, the, the, the West Coast upwelling regions of Chile, Peru, etc., and California and South Africa and Namibia. But the El Niños then come and they sort of, suppress this upwelling a little bit in two ways. One, we get warm waters coming up from the equator, and secondly, we have a weakening in the winds. So there's less, uh, there are less nutrients around, um, like um, yeah, you haven't put as much compost in your garden. The, this year is, is, is sort of weird because it's not really an El Nino, but it looks just like one. In other words, the, the water hasn't really... The, the typical process that happens on the equator sort of between the Philippines and the Americas... Um, has it started up last year and it sort of faded out, but we've got this big warm 
blob of water which has come in a different route and a different mechanism, but it's still moving north and it's still been suppressing upwelling since July. And, and you know as well as, as anybody about the, the sea lions and the birds and a lot of the higher trophic level marine life are, are struggling with this lack of upwelling. It, last week it came back, so hopefully it's here to stay. We saw you know, temperatures below 10 degrees centigrade was at 49 Fahrenheit or something. We haven't seen this since last June. And with that came the nutrients, and hopefully the system's going to get cranked up again now. Um, so it's a, it's been a, I, I like to call it a warm anomaly. Like, it's anomalous, and it's warm like an El Nino, but it's not exactly an El Nino. So we're trying to figure it out. Fantastic. I had a feeling those were upwelling winds last week. It just had that certain intensity and persistence that was definitely upwelling, and I was hoping that's what was going on. So thanks for telling us a little bit about that. Um, we just have another minute or so left. As a community member and a professor and advisor to the sanctuary through the Sanctuary Advisory Council, what do you hope this expansion will mean, not only for the coastal communities, but inland communities in Sonoma County and southern Mendocino? The, the meaning to me mostly is, is, as I say, trying to understand the ocean so that we we understand the mechanisms and we achieve what we hope to achieve. And what we hope to achieve is that the ocean will continue being you know, a bounteous, wonderful place um, and that we don't unwittingly um, denude it or reduce it um, as, as time goes on. And so the, there are so many, we call them ecological services from the ocean. I mean, some obvious ones are food that we can carry on catching fish and eating the fish and shellfish from the ocean. But there are many others as well, including water quality and air quality. And, you know, why, why is it so wonderful to live near the coast? Because we have the clean air coming off the ocean. There, there are, you know, countless benefits, and that's our aim of the sanctuaries, is to it's not just to preserve museum-like bits of the ocean, but to preserve the ocean functioning as a healthy system. And in the long term, that's going to benefit us as humans, um, and that's not just for those who live on the coast, but for throughout the state and actually back throughout the nation and the world. Fantastic. Well, John, I want to just say thank you for all your contributions in science and advising to the largest ocean community as well as the National Marine Sanctuaries here on the coast, and thank you so much for calling in for a few minutes today. Well, it's, it's great to be on the program. All the best, Jennifer. Thanks again. We've had a very diverse show talking about desalination and the potential impacts that desalination can bring to coastal communities and the ocean. And keep your ears posted of what's going on along the coast here. We're all thinking about water very carefully. And just think about it a little bit more as you open up that tap and think about where it came from and, of course, how to best conserve it. It's such a precious resource. And then also to John, thanks for giving us the update on the expansion. And you'll be hearing more about this in years, in days, weeks, months to come. I'm really excited to hear about how this is all tying together the entire ecosystem, the source waters to the area where a lot of the production takes place. And I'm thrilled to hear that we just had a little upwelling last week with some cold water, and hopefully it'll help bring back some food for the local wildlife and the migratory species that come here from so far away. Thanks for joining us today on Ocean Currents. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, part of the West Marin Matters series, and you can catch past episodes by visiting cordellbank.noaa.gov backslash education. 
or you can catch the podcast in iTunes and just search for Ocean Currents and all the shows are there as well. Thank you so much for tuning in and get those buckets out for the rain and have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.